Greetings and salutations, one and all. I am Jeffrey Wheatman, and I am your host for Risk and Reels. I am very excited. I actually always say that because I'm always excited because we have the best guest. But I'm really excited today to have as my guest, my good friend, Jonathan Kerr. John and I met working together at Gartner 8, 9, 10, 100 years ago. I have no sense of timing post-COVID. Could have been a decade, could have been six weeks, don't know anymore. So John, among many other things, is currently working as an advisor for Lionfish Technology Advisory. And they are actually a company founded by another former Gartner analyst, uh, a, a close friend of ours. So welcome, John. I know we've been trying to plan this for months. Yeah. Thank you, Jeff. It's great to be here. Awesome. Before we jump in, John, you have a very long and storied career. Can you sum it up in 60 seconds for our listeners so they know who you are and why they should be listening to you? Started off at a university writing code for yeah, Sonic's routers, went on to found and set up an ISP or two, found my way into the security regime, did forensic investigations, was a UK government approved pen tester, found my way from there from a career in consulting, doing that kind of work into Gartner, where, as you say, we met and yeah, now live and well and living in Portugal. Excellent. So I, I just, for those of you that are listening that are in the US, John actually wrote code for routers, not routers. Come on, man, learn the language. Uh, routers, <laughs> yes. There we go. <laughs> it, it actually doesn't sound right when you say it that way. You say router, I say router. Let's call the whole thing off. Tomato, tomato. Um, all right. Uh, so as everyone knows, we always start off with a movie question. So what am I going to hit you with, John? Uh, okay, I got it. Um, heist movies, right? A movie built around somebody trying to steal something, usually the most complicated way possible. Let's bring together a group of 100 people, all of whom have very narrow capabilities. Let's bring them together and let's steal some kind of MacGuffin. So what's your favorite heist movie and why? I liked the Ocean 13 movie, not necessarily the first or the second two, but I liked the third one because I liked the coming back. It had Al Pacino in it, and I'm a huge Al Pacino fan. But I liked the idea that it was there to not just to <clears throat> grab something for gain, but actually to try and right some, some social wrong as well. Okay. All right. So I'm a big Pacino fan as well. I actually met him. He was doing a Broadway show many years ago, probably 15 years ago. And he, I had a lot of free time. So we waited after the show and they come out the door. They don't think they do that anymore. But so I actually met him. He was a super nice guy. And the funny thing is he sounds exactly like he does in the movies, right? You expect him to say hoo-ha at any given moment. Um, all right. So that's a great choice. So what is, and I got to come up with, with my favorite heist movie and it was going to be Ocean's 11, but I won't do that. So here's my one, the Manchurian candidate. Okay. The original one with Frank Sinatra. And that wouldn't necessarily be thought of as a heist movie, but really what were they doing? They were trying to steal the United States. And I think that was a really cool one. Again, a ridiculously over convoluted plot. Uh, Frank Sinatra was great in that movie. I just thought it was a great movie. The remake was decent uh, with Lieb Schreiber, who was another favorite of mine. But heist movies are always fun. Did you did you see the most recent Oceans movie with with the all female crew? 
I'm not sure I did. You should check it out. It has an interesting flavor to it. And there are some great, I can't remember who's in it, but there are 11 ladies. Uh, and it was actually interesting, a different sort of take, but I thought it was good. So in, in Oceans 13, who's, your, who's the favorite member of your crew? It's hard to say. I think I uh, there's an undeniable screen charm from George Clooney, um, and I think that I I think that yeah, despite being spending a lot of time in a hospital bed, I think Elliot Gould ties it together. And again, that's just maybe a preference for the actor. <laughs> he's you know what I love him too, and he is super super funny. He he's he and Bruce Dern seem to show up in all these movies playing these sort of very like narrow characters that bring to your point like a lot of flavor we actually deb and i just watched a movie on netflix called old dads i think very oh, off color yeah. so be careful if you watch it oh so we'll have to talk about that a, another time but bruce dern shows up as this totally wacky uber driver and he just he it was just so funny and he he has that great character um so ice movie so I think what I'd like to talk to you about, John, is fraud, right? We know that fraud is a huge issue. It has all kinds of different flavors. John will not say it, but I will say it for him. John essentially created, launched, and matured the fraud coverage at our former employer, Gartner. And dare I say that it has never been the same since you, since you have left. But I think that fraud is a huge issue. I think it is frequently treated by outside of the typical cybersecurity domain, but there are so many overlaps. And one of the things that I'll share, and then I will stop talking, there is a subreddit called scams. And it's you look at them and it's people getting scammed for money, crypto, whatever. The thing that's interesting is it's always a variation of the same tune, right? These frauds, these scams, these cons are the same cons that were used 200 years ago, right? The pigeon drop, the one with the fiddle, right? So fraud preys on human emotion. People want to be wealthy. They don't want to work that hard. So talk, let's talk a little bit, John, about what in fraud, the evolution, and then we'll, I'll, I'll believe me, I'm going to step on you and stop you as you go, but let's talk about fraud. Okay. And I'm also a fan of the, uh, yeah, the scam subreddit and... Occasionally, you will see me lurking in there and perhaps posting a, a comment or two. And I do like it because, as you say, every day there are two, three, four saying, hey, this has happened to me. Is it a scam? And I think that's one of the first thing is when there's doubt, there is no doubt. If you think it's possibly a scam, it probably is. If it looks too good to be true, it probably is too good to be true. Right. No one's giving you free money. No one's moving here to marry you. Nope. Exactly. There is no desire. There are no desirable supermodels waiting at home thinking, if only I could find that perfect guy on the internet. Yeah, um, doesn't happen. Yes. <laughs> Maybe at the gym. Jeff, you're more of a gym person than I am. But anyway, the point about it translating to the corporate domain is that, I'd say, like the personal domain, the scams, corporates are targets too. And why are corporates targets? That's where the money is. Echoing Willie Sutton, the very famous bank robber back in the American Wild West heyday. I use that quote frequently. <laughs> there you go. There you go. And so I think that if you say that's where the money is, then the next question is why attack it there? Because corporate organizations, end user organizations, if you like, 
are usually less sophisticated, less aware, and less expecting an attacker to come and try and steal money or obtain, as they say, goods and services by deception, which is the definition of fraud. It's hard to defraud a bank. Banks are expecting it. Now, of course, frauds do happen in banks, but banks are expecting it and they have, yeah, defense strategies and indeed loss strategies so that when it happens, they can cope with it. It tends to be a bigger deal in the corporation because nobody's expecting it. And you know what else no one ever expects, John? The Spanish Inquisition. I wasn't expecting you to say that. Anyway, the so when it happens, there's and I saw this very recently actually, and there was a story in the uh, BBC News back in the UK. A furniture factory said, "Oh no, it's terrible. We lost 1.6 million, and they got a turnover of about 11 million. So that's pretty significant." But then I read the story a bit more depth. It turns out one employee was duped by these fraudsters to send this money. Now that employee happened to be, I think, financial controller of the organization, so in a position of responsibility. What does that tell us? Well, there's a couple of things there. First of all, this can hit anybody. We're all, we're all frankly, vulnerable to being scammed, to being duped. Nobody is immune. Nobody is so smart that they cannot get, they cannot get duped or scammed. And in fact, there's a good argument that the smarter you are, sometimes it's actually more likely that you're going to get taken over. Because once you get taken outside of your area of expertise, the area where you're smart, that's where you're vulnerable. And the second thing is, this one guy, like I said, got scammed. This one guy got duped and was duped into transferring all this money. I don't know about you, uh, Jeff, but if I was going to transfer $1.6 million out of my company, I would quite like it if I had a second pair of eyes saying, is this really a good idea? And that's a big thing. Whether we're talking about people doing embezzlement inside an organization or falling victim to an external criminal, it's actually geometrically much less likely that two people get duped than one gets duped. Because one person gets caught up in the web of the, the story and so on. Uh, a second person looks at this and goes, hey, this doesn't make sense to me. So there are a couple of things. And again, very simple things that we all know about, that we all know are good ideas. Things like having dual person sign off. Now, you said to me, this is usually a bit outside the cyber domain. And... That was one of my constant struggles in our former employer in Gartner, both in my in my shower moments when I was busy trying to you know set the world to rights while washing my hair, but again in internal debates as well. What does fraud have to do with cyber? In the world we're in now, we've moved away from checks. Most people have. I know you still have checks in the USA, but you know, like, <laughs> when, when my you... my mother still writes checks every month. That's nice of her. There you go. She, <laughs> she, however, she knows enough though. She calls me when something seems too good to be true. That's there. You go, smart, savvy yeah. lady. Um, where did it all go wrong, Jeff? Um, <laughs> I don't. I don't know. You'd have to ask my mom. <laughs> <laughs> Coming soon to a Risk and Reels podcast. So anyway, what I was going to say is the world has changed. We're no longer in a world of paper processes and so on. 
and we're obviously in the world of digital information. Fraudsters act on information flows, on process flows. And where does this impact on cyber? Here's an easy example. Fraudsters like to disguise their identity. They don't like to say, hey, it's me. I'm a fraudster operating out of Portugal or Nigeria or any other country. They like to say, actually, we are, they're operating under the radar. So clearly, we're into the realm of identity and access management. If a fraudster can disguise their identity, if they can assume another identity, in other words, subvert the identity and access management system, then they're more likely to be able to perpetrate their um, crimes, their, their, their acts of fraud. So, um, so when, you, when you're talking about subverting identity, you're, uh, a recent example would be the hack of the three-letter hospitality company, right? Not fraud, but that started with identity impersonation, right? They called the help desk. And they fake them out, right? Okay. Yeah, absolutely. And as I say, the identity, the access management, the that the whole substrate, which people are now saying this is front and center in many cloud-enabled applications. That's important. The, the next thing, of course, is that what the frauds to do when they manage to gain access. We know in retail systems or in banking systems, we know fraudsters will try and fake out special offers. But hey, guess what? Fraudsters are not averse to, look, if we can actually get a foothold in the system, let's borrow some tools from the attackers. And so fraudsters will say, hey, if we can get a shell access, if we can get some SQL injection, some kind of uh, injection access, why don't we upload some ransomware? Because, hey, that's a revenue stream, right? So the reason I think this is interesting, and one of the things that I think is important is that this interconnection between what tradi our traditional adversaries, the cyber criminals, the attackers have been doing, actually the, the fraudsters, if you like, are adding some teeth to that and actually saying, actually, we can use these tools for significant monetary gain. And I think one of the other things that happens, of course, is that when a fraudster runs a bot attack, if they, if they manage to leverage, yeah, they manage to do some leverage on, I don't know, PlayStation sales or all the other hype sales that they do, then the, um, the proceeds from that go into some fairly nasty things indeed. And these, the proceeds of these fraud being used for some really nasty crimes, for trafficking, for modern slavery, for illicit weapons sales, and so on and so forth. And of course, all that money then comes out and is used in money laundering. So you then have yet another crime, which there's a trail there saying actually the fraudsters, although... You may not be able to match the identities easily because, of course, this is a factory operation, a production operation. And the fraudsters end up being, yeah, responsible for financial crimes. And so I think that this is important. And there's the other thing as well. We were talking about scams and we were talking about the attitude of, oh, yeah, I got done. Or, hey, that guy got caught out. Aren't they dumb for getting caught up? I'm not sure that 
victim shaming is ever useful. And in our personal life. Thank you. Thank you for saying that. When I ran teams in my earlier career, I used to, let's stop blaming. Let's figure out what happened and let's make sure it doesn't happen again. Blaming people, making them feel less than is just going to incent them to not talk about it next time. Yeah. And that's what we need to do because we know that fraudsters talk to each other. We know that cyber criminals share ideas. They learn from each other what works, what victims are particularly relevant. Hey, can I go after this organization? Oh, yeah. What we need to do is we need to make sure that we are sharing information. We're talking about this problem. And as you say, it's impossible to do that if someone is thinking, hey, if I own up, hey, I'm a financial controller at this organization and I'm just across the front page of the BBC News, web BBC News website and people are going, oh, my goodness, what a dumbass that person is. These are very clever, skilled manipulators. It is no more someone's fault that they have fallen victim to a clever, skilled manipulator than it is if somebody falls victim to a careless driver. It is no, so we need to get out of this idea, as you say, of blaming. It doesn't move us forward. If we can do that, we can share information on the way these fraudsters are operating. One of the things right now that I do see is that the fraudsters are seriously attacking the supply chains. So if I want to attack, I don't know, a big garment manufacturer, if I want to attack a bank, if I want to attack, I don't know, a, a university or some college, I don't think I'm going to go after their well-defended financial systems. Why don't I go after their supply chain and find a way in that way? And again, that's something that we've seen in the cybercrime world, the cyber attacker world, is the supply chain is vulnerable. If you combine the vulnerabilities with email accounts getting taken over, as simple as that, with the very clever social engineering attacks that you see from fraud, you have a real problem. All right. So you, that was a lot of really good stuff, John. Very dense. There are a couple of things I just want to pull on because I think they're interesting. So clearly the supply chain one is one that is near and dear to our heart at, at Black Height. And I think you, you hit on something that I'd like to get your thoughts on. Typically, when people hear the term supply chain, they're thinking about physical things, right? But when you're talking about like banking and insurance and industries similar to that and peripheral, supply chain for them is a digital supply chain. So are you seeing a shift in the way people are thinking about supply chain risk and protecting against supply chain risk? I think for me, what I see, and especially in the context of uh, fraud fighting, it's the communication lines. And what is certainly true, that no matter whether it's a physical supply chain, whether it's a service supply chain, or for that matter, a software supply chain, the fraudsters will go after the lines of communication. That's where they can get their leverage. And of course, if you get control of those lines of communication, then you have, yeah, you have that supply chain, whether it be supplying logistics services, whether it be supplying raw materials, or for that matter, whether it be supplying software components. Interesting. Okay. All right, good. And then, so we are 22 minutes in and we have not said anything about 
AI. Are you seeing AI having an impact on fraud, either are the attackers using it to do impersonation? Um, one, one of our former guests, who I, I won't reveal too much, but one of our former guests was actually in the midst of fighting off an attack that was clearly AI generated, right? They were creating these AI generated emails and sending them out to customers. So are you seeing an uptick in AI both from the attacker perspective and then of course, from the defense perspective, right? AI sits on both sides there. Are you seeing any changes as a result of that? In the financial world, AI has been part of the fraud fighters arsenal for decades now. It's not new. From pattern matching systems using neural networks through to, as you say, risk ratings for loan approvals, all of that now is heavily AI generated and has been for many years. And the fraudsters, yeah, the bad guys, if you like, know this and it's a target. And there's two things they do. And I had this great conversation. Again, one of the nice things about working for our former employer was the access you got. And I remember having a conversation with a couple of Googlers who said, we've been watching this and we've been figuring out. And they said, there's two attacks. And he said, you think of the AI system in a defender as the Oracle. It gives, it says, it looks at all of the information and says, yes, allow this transaction. Don't allow that transaction. Yes, open that bank account. Don't open that bank account. And whatever it may be. So what can you do with an Oracle? You can map the Oracle. So you can work out what, if you like, treat it as a black box, what selection of inputs give the output you're looking for? What can I do to fly under the radar? Why is this wrong? Of course, because we're seeing this in uh, NDR and indeed EDR, EPP and cyber as well. AI is in there. So what can I do to fly under the radar to make the Oracle think that what I'm doing is okay? Mapping the Oracle. And the other thing, of course, is poisoning the oracle. A lot of these systems are what we would call assisted, stateful learning systems, so like neural network-based systems. And the thing about these systems is once they've learned something, it's really hard to get them to unlearn it. So again, if I can work out what the behavior pattern is, if I can work out uh, how to map and then develop a pattern of behavior to teach the oracle that this behavior is good it's the new normal it's okay then i can perpetrate my attacks without fear of detection and that happens as well and again we've all seen the all seen the things where we uh, can teach an ai system that a picture of a cat is really a dog and so forth and it's these tiny little pets of these are things that the attackers are doing of course How do you speed this up when you're talking about a system that's looking at millions and millions of different patterns? You use your own AI to try and figure out how to fly under that radar, how to perpetrate the text. And so, again, that's what we're seeing. And the other point you make. So, John, let me ask you a question. Do you see a future in fraud where the people are not even involved? It's AI attacker going against AI defender and the people are abstracted. Do you see that as a possible future? It's a question I raised actually, and it comes back to it comes actually back to three things. The first one, and I guess the most important one, is how much do you trust that system? Do you trust that system <laughs> to give over control of your business, of your revenue stream? Yeah, without looking at it. And there are problems with that. 
The next piece is controllability, which is aligned to that idea of how much do we trust the machine. And the third piece is accountability. So when the machine makes a decision, and again, in my inglorious career for prior to joining you in Gartner, I did some expert witness work. And I would not have liked to have stood on a witness stand in court and the judge says, why do you think this happened? And it's because the magic machine in the corner told me so, Your Honor. It doesn't go down well. So the... Um, so even worse than the old, why'd you make that decision? Because this guy with two thumbs said so. It's right. worse than that. It's worse than that because you can't really... So we need... So, but let And there, there's plenty, and there's some interesting anecdotes to, to all of those. But one of the interesting things about control um, there is a company who I won't mention sold a fraud system to a large hotel chain that you and I have both stayed at. But this hotel chain bought this fraud system and the the people that made, made it were really AI purists. They said the AI system is the decision maker. You don't need any override controls. You don't need any priorities. You don't need any rules. The AI system knows you'll make the right decision. One day, for reasons of its own, the AI decision decided that all of the gold loyalty card holders of this particular hotel chain were bad people and would not allow them to make reservations or indeed pay for their hotels because they were all bad people. Um, this was considered to be a problem in by the hotel chain who went to the their vendor and said excuse me why are we not able to have any of our gold loyalty customers as guests we like them and they said oh the ai system has learned this don't worry it'll unlearn it and they said when and they said we don't know and they said we'd, we'd like a lever to pull to tell the ai not to do this they said no no we're ai purists we don't believe in that which goes to your point about controllability when these systems make a mistake and nothing is perfect, these are non-deterministic systems, when they make a mistake, how do we make sure that humans can assert control? And I think the final piece is accountability. Part of control, part of trust is, hey, machine, why did you make that decision? And I say you and I, uh, in our past, we've people have said, "What were you thinking when you gave that particular piece of advice or wrote that particular piece?" <laughs> Sometimes there's no good answer. I I hear that question frequently out of work as well. What were you thinking? Ah <laughs> uh, yes, yeah. so, so, I say out of work. Sometimes there's no good answer to that question. One no. of the problems with AI is that. Like it's hard to work out what the internal state of an AI machine is. In fact, it's it's like a, a canon of computer science that you cannot know what the internal state of an AI is because it's doing its own thing. So when you say there's a decision here that was problematic, we need to trace back and work out how that happened so we prevent it from happening again, it's difficult. So that accountability, that auditability, the explainability, if I can call it that of an AI is also important, especially as say when we're talking about business processes, we're talking about trust, we're talking about all auditability, all the things that are dear to the heart of most cyber professionals. All right, excellent. Yeah, so the, the whole AI thing I think is super interesting for a variety of reasons, but you talked about the data poisoning 
And I was at a conference uh, earlier in the year and a guy who was much, much smarter than me did a session on AI. And I asked him about the data poisoning thing. And he said, there's so much data, it would be really hard to dump enough data in there to poison the well. And I nodded my head, but I don't think that is actually true. There, the example that I use when I, I have a pitch I do on AI, and the example I use, it's probably five or six years old now, but there was a researcher that figured out that there was some machine learning going on in Google Maps. So he filled a wagon with a bunch of cell phones, and he wrote a script that basically pinged Google Maps and said, there's traffic here, there's traffic here, there's traffic here. And it ended up reporting there was traffic and he took pictures and there was literally not one car on the street. It actually was in Amsterdam, and I think it was a street that didn't even allow cars, right? Google Maps is getting a lot of data and they were able to, to poison that. And, and I think that linking that to something you said earlier, talking about more pure fraud, I think is important for people to understand. Fraud is not a binary thing, right? It's There are trends and tendencies. You may see one thing and you go, oh, maybe, but then you see two or three things around the same thing and you say, oh, that's definitely fraud. Right. So when you have those sort of softer decisions, there was a, a whole discipline around fuzzy logic maybe 25 years ago, which kind of never went anywhere. But I think we're starting to see that approach come back, which is if we have 10 data points, let's weight them and then figure it out. So do you is there an awareness about how practical and implementable it is to actually poison that data? We know the AIs are biased in a variety of ways. Right. To, to your point, pumping that stuff in there, even if it's just setting up a whole bunch of fake credit card transactions or issuing a bunch of fake wire transfers. So what do you see as the defense against that when, as you point that there's you don't know this current state of these engines, these algorithms, whatever you want to call them? You, men you mentioned bias and um, bias is absolutely a problem. And unfortunately, the best or the worst things about AI is they reflect our own fallible human biases. And sometimes they do it in yeah all too painful start reality. Going back to your point about, hey, there's so much data, I don't know if you could really poison it. Not saying you would, but let's say, Jeff, you and I decided to start up careers at pickpockets. Would you prefer to be a pickpocket in Times Square in a really busy day with lots of people around? Or would you prefer to be a pickpocket in a one-horse town with two or three other people? Times Square, clearly, because there's background noise. Bingo. <laughs> Bingo, sir. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the thing about there's so much data. But it's a... Your researcher friend, it's a hypothesis. It's possible. How do we get to that? I'm going back to something I mentioned earlier explainability, auditability. We need to know, is it easier to hide in a crowd of data? Or does that actually make it harder? Again, it depends. How much weight is the AI system putting on each of the individual pieces of data? Because not all data items are created equally. And again, going back to the world of cyber, the idea of geolocating somebody by IP address we know there are lots of ways around geolocation IP address. You can use VPNs, you can use Tor, you can do all kinds of funky stuff. You can hide your location. 
And indeed, that sometimes that's the only way you can actually watch Paramount Comedy Plus on in Portugal, apparently. No, no, no. You don't want to talk about the fact that we use VPNs from hotels when we travel. We do not want to talk about never, that. Never, never done that. No, no, never done that. Um, yes. Yeah, so anyway, but so there you go. <laughs> so again, how do you determine? How do you determine which data items are vulnerable? That if an attacker could subvert this particular data, it will change the view of the AI. Again, we're back to explainability and auditability. We need to understand what the AI is doing, how it's making its decisions, so that we know or we can surmise whether your researcher is correct or whether we're right that it is better to be a pickpocket in Times Square. All right, John, this was awesome. Uh, I want to be cognizant of your time. So I'm going to recap a couple of key things you said that I thought were super interesting, and then I will kick it over to you for any final thoughts, and then we will go on our merry way, you and your afternoon and me and my morning. First key point I think that's really important is that smarter people that are more seasoned, more experienced, tend to get duped more easily. And I think that's related to Dunning-Kruger, right? People think they know better. We know from running programs that security people and IT people are sometimes the biggest risk. The two eyes are better than one. I love that. That's a really important thing, having people check without anyone feeling, hey, you're looking over my shoulder, but we do need to validate. And the example you gave, a $1.6 million transfer for an $11 million company, that's a significant proportion of revenue that no one double checked, right? Supply chain, especially on the software side, is a key sort of access vector. Um, the other thing you said that I loved is that fraud tends to compromise flows rather than individual pieces, right? So it's looking at the data flow and, and the process. And then uh, AIM, I wrote down AIM. IAM is actually a really important thing because the fraudsters, you're right. No one's going to call up and go, hey, I'm Jeffrey Wheatman and I'm here to steal from you. They're going to say instead, hey, I'm John Kerr and I love you and I want to do nice things for you. So that's, I think, a, a key thing. And then you talked a bunch of times about something that is near and dear to me, which is the whole concept of accountability. Historically, we talk about accountability for people, but you're saying that we need to have accountability around the AIs, and I think that's really important, and I haven't really heard that before. So I learned a lot. This was actually super interesting and fun, of course, to get to talk to my buddy. Any final closing thoughts from you sitting on the beach in Portugal? I think the, the fun... First of all, it's raining. Oh, you didn't have to say that. You could have told everyone when you were sitting on the beach, and they wouldn't know. They wouldn't know, yeah. Actually, I took the dog out uh, last night, and it was very nice listening to the surf and the Atlantic. Um, yeah, that was actually quite cool. I think the most important thing is something we touched on, and the, if say, if nothing else sticks from this podcast, there's something I would really like people to remember. We have to be able to talk about this. We have to be sharing information. Fraud fighters, end users, we have to be talking about what's happened. What's worked? What hasn't worked? What attacks have we been able to stop? And I think the other thing that you mentioned, you talked about the idea of fuzzy logic. Fraud is very much a fuzzy logic problem because it's not about resisting all comers. It's about how much do we want to spend and how much fraud can we live with? 
So the idea that, again, you and I talked about for years and years, this idea of risk tolerance, risk appetite, becomes super important in this area because it's a case of how much do we want to spend and how much are we prepared to live with in terms of fraud? Because it's never going to go right. away entirely. Right. All right. Love it, John. Thank you again for agreeing to join us on Risk and Reels. I know it's been three months, I think, we've been trying to get this set up, so I appreciate it. I want to thank John for joining. I want to thank all of you for listening. Please make sure you subscribe so you don't miss future guests. We got some great folks coming up in the near future. So I want to thank everyone for joining us. This has been another episode of Risk and Reels with your host, Jeffrey Wheatman. Stay safe, stay healthy, stay secure. Wheatman out. Thank you for listening to Risk and Reels, a cybersecurity podcast. Be sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to riveting 30-minute conversation about movies and cybersecurity. Jeffrey will be on the road this year at some of the industry's biggest events, but you can always find him on LinkedIn and Twitter at Jeffrey Wheatman. This podcast is powered by Blackkite, the only security rating service to deliver the highest quality intelligence to help organizations make better risk decisions.